Coming up on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we have a very special announcement you're absolutely going to love and is guaranteed to make you happy. We're going to talk to Neil Gompa, a Fedora 33 package maintainer and contributor to open source about the latest Fedora release. And then we'll head to space and discuss how Linux is powering the future of exploration and technology. In our gaming section, we'll announce a new cloud streaming service that's going to blow your mind. And of course, our popular tips, tricks, and software picks. All this and so much more coming up right now on Destination Linux. Welcome to episode 198 of Destination Linux. Get your DLN mugs, take a sip, sit down and relax and prepare to have an open source Linux goodness delivered right to your front door and your brain. My name is Noah. With me today are the future moon water bottling company executives, Michael, Ryan, and Jill. This week's, <laughs> instead of our roundtable, we're going to discuss some very exciting announcements at DLN and in our community. The first announcement, we're about to celebrate our 200th episode of Destination Linux. We're going to yeah. celebrate wow. in the best way that we know how, and that's mm -hmm. by having a game fest the day we record episode 200. Everyone is welcome. We can't wait to have a one shot, no scope, one another. We will be yeah. streaming it online on Twitter and Twitch. So clear your calendars. November 15th at 4 p.m. Eastern, we'll be playing at our very own deal, Zenotic and Super Tux Cart server. But that's not the only exciting news. Yes, not just episode 200 and not just Game Fest. We have filled the fourth host spot of Destination Linux, and we filled that with Jill Bryant right here. So Aww. a permanent host of Destination yeah. Linux now, somebody who's guaranteed to make you happy, like we said in the intro, every time we have Jill on, the amount of feedback we get from the audience, the amount of people who say they watched the episode and it made them happier, it made their day brighter, they thought it was just so special, we could not, the infectiously happy Jill, we could not <laughs> go without, what do people need more in 2020? than somebody who is as happy and kind as Jill to add some adultness to the show. For one, <laughs> that would be really important. But number two, some much, much needed happiness. So thank you, Jill, so much. Aww. We are so excited to have you. I am so honored and excited. And it's just, it, it it's so wonderful being able to work with Michael, Ryan, and Noah. You have no idea. This has made my 2020. <laughs> For oh, sure. just wait for a couple episodes <laughs> before you make that claim. You may be retracting that. <laughs> You'll see. Really You'll see how it is. <laughs> uh, but we're also not done yet. We still have some more stuff to announce. Like there's a new show joining the DLN family. You stay tuned in the next few weeks. We So we finalize the details and give you that. Uh, it's also time for us bringing back a the, the DLN community charity event. We want to have the community put their opinion in and let us know like what charity you want us to participate with. So if you have any suggestions, go to the DLN discourse forum. We'll have a link for that thread in the show notes and in the video description for and now. Since our last charity though, Michael, we had probably, I don't know, 15,000 less listeners back then. So for those who oh, don't yeah. know, sure. we have free geek was a charity that we sponsored. Mm -hmm. when we initially kicked off the destination Linux network yeah. And we were mm -hmm. able to raise thousands of dollars for Free Geek thanks to our amazing community. And towards the end, me and Noah getting in a battle of who could donate the most also helped throw that <laughs> over the edge. And then on top of that, we were able to get equipment to Free Geek. And oh, yeah. this all helped close, you know, their their mission is to work on the digital divide and help get computers in the hands of underprivileged individuals, people who hit hardships, children now. Uh, so we were able to do amazing things with Free Geek during that time. This is something we want to continue to keep doing with the community. It's important that we're involved mm -hmm. uh, within these problems that we talk about on the show and figure out ways to solve them. So this is your chance to put in those charities in the discourse forum. Go there. Put in the charity that you think we, we're looking for someone worldwide, preferably because our audience is worldwide. Right. Uh, so that everybody has a reason to, to kind of get involved. There's so many good causes out there to get involved with in 2020. So put those in there. We then reach out to those charities and find which ones want, are interested in working back with us. And then we'll do events and things tied to that to help raise awareness, raise some funds or get equipment or whatever the charity's big push is. To help that move forward, uh, utilizing really the power and reach of the Destination Linux network. So definitely 
participate and go look for some great charities out there. Yeah. And also we are super interested in the digital divide. So you have any particular uh, charities that are specific to that, that would be fantastic. We would love to know more about those. Please do so. And and we'll have a link for the discourse thread in the show notes and in the video description. That's a heck of an opening. What do we do now? I know. (laughs) Noah, I agree. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean recently announced their new app platform service, which is a solution to build modern cloud-native apps. With App Platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites quickly and easily. Simply point your GitHub repository and let the App Platform do all the heavy lifting. It supports things like Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, and Docker. DigitalOcean runs all their App Platform on their own infrastructure, so your costs are significantly lower than with other products. Plus, they built this new App Platform on top of the DigitalOcean Kubernetes, providing a smoother migration path so that you can take more control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. Better than that for free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 credit. You can go to do.co slash DLN and use that $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's new app platform. Of course, we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this week's episode of Destination Linux. In our community feedback this week, Mike writes us to say, and I had to abridge this email some due to the length, but the gist of it is, hello, guys. I've just listened to the latest Destination Linux. As always, it's a good podcast. You should have put great there, but we accept good. Uh, <laughs> but I have to take issue with your comments about Microsoft in their attempt to bring Edge to Linux. I have been working with Linux for 25 years for the last eight years, totally blind. A very large number of Linux programs are just not usable, and a lot of them The distribution cannot be installed by a person who is blind like me without assistance. Comparing Windows to Linux for accessibility is no contest. I can even install Windows 10 now unassisted by starting with the internal screen reader when I boot the installation media. Microsoft has put in a very large amount of money and effort to make Windows accessible to disabled people, including blind and visually impaired people. And a big part of this reason is Section 503 of the Rehabilitation Act. This means the very large section of corporate America could not use Linux on the desktop even if they wanted to. You can bet your bottom dollar that whatever software Microsoft ports to Linux will have the same attention to accessibility to the software it makes for Windows. And then Office 365 arrives on Linux that will no doubt be fully accessible. Apple also has accessibility in both macOS and iOS, which it streets ahead of Android and Linux. And no doubt your beloved Ubuntu Touch would render a phone totally unusable by me, whereas I can do pretty much as you could do with my iPhone 8 Plus. He goes on to mention he would like us to cover more accessibility information when we're talking about these distros. So uh, first of all, I looked at into this because Mike has reached out to us before about covering accessibility issues in different distros. And certainly the big distros like Ubuntu, Fedora are heavily documented for their accessibility capabilities. A lot of the accessibility is actually based in the desktop environment that you choose. So when we're talking about a Fedora and you use a GNOME, they're like GNOME, there's a lot of accessibility built into GNOME and a lot of documentation around that. I have worked with and actually ported accessibility documentation, wrote myself for Pop! OS, for instance, but a lot of that is based on the work that is done by GNOME. Um, so other distros that are generally smaller I have noticed do not put any accessibility documentation or even link to it within their documents. And that is certainly something for the community members and things to go reach out and talk to those individuals about. But aside from that, I think it's very interesting that he states that, you know, there's just so much better accessibility because of this rehabilitation act that Microsoft has to follow in Microsoft products. But when you're starting with edge, Edge really is just a rebranded Chrome. So I don't think that that Microsoft is putting anything additional accessibility-wise in there because they're utilizing Google's Chrome or Chromium, I guess you would say, to build their infrastructure and just putting some you know, different links and wallpapers and search engine option on top of it. So I don't really see how that one fits, but certainly maybe if Office and others, as you mentioned, did come to Linux in the future, 
they would have the accessibility options that they had over in Windows brought over to Linux? I mean, they probably, they probably do something just because, uh, just to make it be consistent with the rest of their stuff. It does, it makes sense if they did something, but I also agree that it it they probably didn't because the majority of their code is from the Chromium base. But I do think that the the, the point about accessibility being a part of distribution reviews and a part of the things that we discuss is very important, and we pr- we tried to do that previously. But sometimes it's hard to find that information. Like, for example, you know, Ryan wrote stuff for Pop! OS, but before that, they didn't have any accessibility stuff, right? Uh, and I think that that's a lot of projects have that issue. So it's hard to find the information. But I can definitely tell you that going forward, whenever we f- we have a project that we are covering and we do are able to find the information, we will absolutely provide it. Yeah. Jill, yeah. anything to add in here? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, I've uh, uh, tested the Orca screen reader on Edge and Chromium, and they've worked just fine for me. And so everyone cool. knows I am half blind. So I do use magnification tools, you know, under Ubuntu Mate, I've used uh, Magnus and, you know, the, the default ones and Gnome and XFCE, and they work very well for me, but I'm only half blind. But sometimes my good eye gets tired. So I will use screen readers. And Orca has been good for me, although for installing the OS, yeah, that is a different issue. And in fact, years ago, you remember Jonathan Nadeau? He had started the Accessibility Computing Foundation and was working on his Sonar Linux Ubuntu distro for the visually impaired. And it didn't get funded well. So he kind of had to stop that project. And uh, he's had Indiegogo campaigns to help improve um, his distro and Orca, you know, and that was uh, quite a few years ago. And there just there needs to be more push for accessibility on Linux. Absolutely. It is a problem. I know my animation students, when I was teaching animation in Windows years ago, um, they were using the JAWS screen reader and ZoomText screen magnification software for Windows. But those are proprietary and extremely expensive. It's $2,100 for the two of those pieces oh of software wow. alone, which most people who are blind or visually impaired you know, don't have the money to, to pay for that. And uh, they do work very well. And I do have actually friends who are completely br- blind that do love iOS for that reason. It's really easy. Apple has done a very good job with the accessibility and the screen reading on iOS. I'm kind of surprised to hear that there <laughs> isn't this push in Linux for this because Linux is used in enterprise environments. Yeah, Linux would be used across many different businesses that do have to uh, comply with these different acts. So I, I would think that, and I know there's some, but I, I was honestly surprised it wasn't more organized than it is because there is a lot of corporations utilizing Linux that would need this type of, of service in there. So, you know, this all goes back to the community at the end of the day. If people get involved to build this stuff, uh, I don't think you would find a distro out there that wouldn't include it in their project. Promotion is as important as building it. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yep. So I definitely recommend that if you are, you know, somebody who can help in this area to take a look at what's out there for Linux, because there is a lot of different accessibility tools out there. Fedora, I think, has some of the best documentation I've seen mm-hmm. as far as the accessibility pieces that they've built in. So go look at that and see if that's somewhere where you can add some help because this is something in Linux that uh, definitely could use some improvement. We love hearing from our worldwide community. What we want you to do is get your official DLN mug, fill it with some coffee and sit down at the nearest stool and send us an email. Send your emails to comments at destinationlinux.org. This week, we wanted to talk with one of our patrons, Neil Gompa, who is a contributor to OpenSUSE Project, Fedora Project, DevOps Engineer, and a DLN show fact checker. He's been a, he's a wealth of knowledge in Linux and open source. And with the release of Fedora 33, we thought it'd be a great idea to speak with somebody, with one of the individuals that contributes to Fedora and shares perspective with all of you. So, Neil, welcome into the program. Hey, Noah. It's great to be here. Let's start with your Linux journey, Neil. How did you get started in Linux? Oh, wow. Um, so like it was 2001, 2002, just uh, one of those days I, I was in a, in my local library um, 
And instead of going up to where the children's books, the video games were, because the computer lab was full of people. So I went down to the serious books section and looked for the computer books. And there was these books over there about Linux. And they included a DVD or, or in some cases, like a collection of CDs to install Linux on. And that's how I found this. I forget which book it was. I think it was like some Sam's publishing mastering Red Hat Linux. And it had a copy of Red Hat Linux 6.2 on it. So that was the... The first version of Linux that I actually loaded on a computer and I dual booted with Windows XP, broke my computer entirely. Uh, and that was the, the starting point for everything. And that's so, what made you want to stay. <laughs> well, yes, because by that point, like I had been working using computers a little bit for like almost my entire life, even by that point. And it had gotten to the point where even at the Windows XP era, I think if, you know, some people may remember that. They, it was often talked about as Fisher Price, and it was very, it was trending towards lockdown and 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 very restricted in what you could do. Things like being able to theme the desktop became almost impossible because it required digital signatures and crap like that. And it took a few years, and they figured out how to break it. But like that's that's the way it was. And I was looking for ways to like explore and play with my computer more and to do more interesting things. And and that outlet, it just kind of coincided with me discovering Linux at the same time. And I just sort of slid right into it. Now, in 2002, Red Hat Linux 6.2 is quite old, 1999. But hey, I went from there to 7.0, and I tried out all these other distros, Mandrake, um, SUSE, uh, and it just kind of fell in love with it and kept going with it. And I went from Red Hat to Fedora. I did Ubuntu uh, uh, shortly after they released in 2005 and kept doing Ubuntu and Fedora dual. And then finally in 2013 or so, I switched to Fedora full-time for everything. And and I do other distributions as well as, you know, I'm a contributor in OpenSUSE and Magia and OpenMadriva and some other places. But that's that's basically, I primarily call Fedora and OpenSUSE my home at this point. Nice. Yeah, Neil, that's awesome. Thank you for sharing sharing that. I don't that's think amazing. I've ever actually said this before to anybody. Like nobody's ever actually yeah. asked. I, I haven't heard that either. <laughs> and I've known you for a while. <laughs> so Neil, since 2007, you've created and maintained distribution packages for RPM and some official Fedora packages. Yeah. And many people want to give back, but are not sure where to start. How do you get started in package maintenance and support? So mm -hmm. in, in Fedora land and in OpenSUSE land, the easiest way is find a piece of software that you, that you already have in the distribution and ask and see if you can help with it. Like maybe help it get updated to the next version because there's always new versions of software coming. Or, and, and you know, in Fedora, uh, we have a Git forge that backs all of our, of our package sources uh, src.fedoraproject.org. It's a Pagura instance, so it takes pull requests. If you can sign in, you can fork a package, make some changes, send a pull request, and the maintainers can take a look at it and see, you know, see if it's good and then merge it and, and push it out. That's a really easy way to kind of get started, like sending patches, fixing things like that. And then you could even go down the path of like, there's a piece of software you found on GitHub or whatever. It's nice, it's open source, it's clean, and it's cool, and you'd like to share it with the world you know, bring it into the Fedora package collection. There's a really easy process for getting started to actually, you know, put that package into the collection and get it out there. And you can push it out into the Rawhide and the stable releases. You can package it for uh, CentOS and RHEL using through the Fedora Apple project, extra packages for enterprise Linux. So like there's a whole bunch of opportunities on the packaging front, but I would also want to point out packaging is not the only way you can help. There's lots of other ways. It's testing, it's documentation, it's artwork, it's marketing, it's it's ambassadorships, it's all that sort of stuff. Like all of those things are important, possibly even more so because like we we over we overbalance on packaging and software development, but it also matters that people know how to use the system, that people know that the system exists and that they can figure out how to contribute and be involved and be part of the community. This is this is what makes Linux successful. It's the community, and that's not just packagers. It's everyone. Yeah. Absolutely. So I was looking at Fedora's <laughs> package management instructions. I'm sorry, not just package management instructions, but their entire contributor process. Because there's an articles out there. I think Fedora Magazine even wrote some articles about this. And one of the things I really liked about how they kind of talk through the different options you have for contributing is there is actually an example, if you want it to be a packager, of a package somebody's maintaining, and they're going step-by-step step with the screenshots in the instructions showing you 
what they have to go through to get one of these packages updated. Now, I have to admit at certain parts, my eyes glazed over and I was like, ah, I don't know if I could do that. So I went back to the documentation contributor section and signed up there instead because uh, that's a little <laughs> bit up, more up my alley. But it is it is really there is really good documentation for Fedora in contributing there, which is awesome for those because I see so many people in the community asking, how do I get involved? Generally, when you go to a lot of distros, frankly, their instructions for getting involved are extremely vague, like join this group, introduce yourself and see where you can help out. Well, that's a little difficult, right? Mm -hmm. It's just very awkward and uncomfortable, but there's a lot of good options out there for those who are interested. Yeah. And the best tip for distros or projects or anything, ask for specific things. Like, I mean, Fedora is doing it really good. They have the specific sections of different ways that you can contribute and that sort of stuff. So like asking for specifics is a lot easier than asking for a broad, you know, contribute or whatever, because it's a, it's kind of confusing to get started in a lot of these projects. And uh, Fedora is a good example of doing that. Yeah. And for people who are a little uncomfortable about getting started, you know, because you know, especially if it's your first project ever, you have no idea how to like take those first steps, regardless of which path you want to take there's now a Fedora join special interest group that what they do is they help people who are interested in making that that transition from being just a user to being also a contributor of any kind, not just packaging, but like any any part of the project. That is awesome. And they help, they help people get started, you know, figure out how to introduce themselves, how to make their first contributions, and they walk them through that process and give them proper mentorship. That is one of the things I'm really happy to see in the Fedora project because it helps make it easier for people to feel like going from being just a user to being part of the community as a contributor is is possible. And and users are part of the community as well. It's just, you know, a lot of people feel like, well, if I'm just a user, it's it's not enough, but you're providing a valuable service in yourself there. If you want to do more, that's fantastic. And there's paths to get there, but also being a user and sharing your experiences and helping others like see the awesomeness of, of Fedora, that is that is fantastic. That is the way to go. Nice. So I joined that group, Neil, and mm-hmm. the first message I got is, is this the real DOS geek? And then I said, yes, it is. And then the next message is, well, whether it's true or not that you're the real DOS geek or a fake one, welcome either way. And then we started from there. So it was a nice kickoff. Aww. Nice. That's awesome. <laughs> okay. So we we had we we asked you to be on the show because about Fedora 33. So let's let's talk about 30, Fedora 33. So looking at it today, what would you say is the biggest difference in the goals between this release of Fedora and the Fedora releases of say you know just a few years ago? So that that's a that's a great and tough question. Uh, I want I want to say that the the biggest difference here between now and releases of a few years ago is that all the easy problems have kind of been solved and we're now trying to tackle like the most difficult parts of making a smooth Linux experience. So like we, we talk about like, for example, with Fedora 32, you know, we introduced the early out of memory manager, early OOM to try to improve responsiveness and prevent like system lockup scenarios. Um, We've done a lot in terms of resource control stuff with uh, adopting system to user sessions for GNOME. And we're going to, you know, we're hopefully going to do that really soon with KDE Plasma um, the transition of the file system from X4 on top of LVM to ButterFS is also part of that story to provide a better user experience in terms of like avoiding that awful calculation that people have to do that where they don't really know about, well, how much space should be on the operating system data and how much space should be for my yeah. user data. And like, there's no, there's no fixing that after the fact. So with the change to ButterFS, it's about fixing those kinds of like, undercurrent pain points that people are like, well, I mean, I've had to do this and everyone else has to do this. At this point, I've figured out everything. It's like new people aren't going to know that. And especially if you're coming from operating systems like Microsoft Windows or um, Apple Mac OS, where in that world, you don't know whether or not you have splits and things like that. And in some cases, it's not even supported. Like you can't easily do a split of your user and and operating system data in Windows. it, it's possible. It's just a pain. Don't do it. But like in in Linux, it's it's something that we expect, but people don't know how to develop that intuition of like what's the right split. So let's just not make it a requirement. That brings that brings the barriers down. And even things like you know the switch to Nano as the default text editor, right? That's that seems like a weird thing to do. Like why would we care about the terminal when we're focusing on the graphical environment? 
Well, you know, Fedora is also a place where a lot of developers work and like it or not. I mean, personally, I think it kind of sucks that developers have to work in the terminal so much. But if you have to work in the terminal, it shouldn't be a pain and you shouldn't be struggling through doing basic things. And things like switching the default editor to something that helps people understand what they're trying to do and gives them some kind of hints of what they're supposed to do, like Nano does, it makes it so that you, people can be more successful in doing what they're trying to do on their system. And let's be fair too. If you're an experienced user that likes to use Vim instead, you can go get that still. This is just, it's kind of the defaults, right? right? And you know how to go get that, right? Because you're this experienced Vim user. You, what about you even the mastered right, how to right get of out of it, which is amazing. Getting out of Vim. Let yeah, the right yeah of exactly. That's, that's <clears throat> not look. I like, mean, Vim's like, <laughs> awesome and powerful, but if you know that you need it, then you know how to install it and go sure, get it. So sure. it's not it's not a big deal. One of the things that I noticed, Neil, about Fedora 33, and I want to read Walt, one of our patrons' comments here because it echoes exactly my experience with Fedora 33. He said, Fedora 33 is the first version that had everything I needed to work, just work, without me pulling my hair out to get it to work. I was impressed enough to install it on all my computers. I will tell you when I first nice. came into Linux mm-hmm. four years ago and tried Fedora, it lasted about 15 seconds on my machine. And then I went right back to an Ubuntu base because I didn't get it. Things weren't working right. It just, I didn't know how to get the software I needed. It didn't make sense. Um, when I went back and tried Fedora 33, I feel like whether this was the intention or not, this is the first time I installed Fedora and said, hey, they're actually targeting the desktop user. Like they're not ignoring the desktop user. That's it, it's the first time I felt that way. I'm glad you felt that way. To be clear, this has been the intent for oh God knows how long. I think at least since I've started doing desktop Linux stuff like five or so years ago. But it's it's a long, hard road to get even the basic stuff ready to be able to pull off that spit and shine polish stuff. Like getting the foundations ready to go so that you could do these sorts of improvements. You know, it's a long, hard road. We switched to Wayland in Fedora 26 for, for the GNOME desktop. We're switching to Wayland uh, for KD Plasma in Fedora 34. But like switching to Wayland also meant that we were able to improve the experience in terms of responsiveness. We were able to have the accuracy for, for frames and things like that. Uh, we, we were able to add security domains for things like that in, in terms of desktop applications, you know, with the portals, the flat packs, um, even while we don't, actively promote snaps. We have support for snaps as well. And of course, we've got RPMs with and GNOME software manages all that or Plasma Discover. And we put we try to put together a user experience where people feel like it they can develop some intuition really easily to be successful in using their desktop on a day-to-day basis. Because most people don't need to be thinking about their operating system on a day-to-day basis. They shouldn't have to think about how, you know, when you click a thing that it's going to like have this kind of effect and this is the effect you want, or this is the effect you don't want. It should be, I click this thing, it does the action, we're done here thinking about it. Like that is- Gets out of your way, right? Right. And and that's, that's the philosophy of like trying to not just do this in Fedora in the in the distribution, but we're also trying to simultaneously bring this up to the upstream projects, the GNOME project, the KDE Plasma project, and, and other places to, to try to refine these experiences there to improve the default experiences for people so that it, if even if you're not using Fedora, you'll get some benefit from what we're doing. I mean, I, I personally think probably the best experience is on Fedora, but you know, we we don't we don't hold all of our improvements close to the best. We, br- we bring it out in the open. We tell people how we did it and they can they can even do it on their own systems. And so that's, that's the way we try to roll here. So speaking of that, what Fedora features as someone who's been in it from for a very long time were you most excited about in 33? Mm-hmm. What was it that got you excited? Oh man, um, really? So that's a, that's a tough one. So I think it's a toss up for me between ButterFS and SystemD ResultD. The ButterFS changed because I really honestly think we should have made this change years ago, but having this change now as opposed to you know later is great. This change opens up so many doors in terms of like improving the experience, providing optimizations for how user data versus system data is stored, getting us to a point to have future improvements like 
we don't have to reinstall the computer to do disk encryption, full disk encryption. That's a thing that like Windows and Mac have had from the very beginning. We still don't have it in Linux. And while it's true, we still don't have it even with ButterFS today. That's what I'm moving towards. I'm moving towards trying to improve those kinds of experiences. So things like, hey, maybe System76 someday decides, you know, they're gonna go, they're gonna wave a little flag and say, hey, we wanna put Fedora on our things and make Fedora-based Pop OS. Well, we will have we would have the tools and infrastructure to be able to support OEM preloads, even branded and customized, but still be able to provide a high quality experience that matches or surpasses Windows and Mac OS. Now, on the other part, where I was saying about systemd resolve D, as a personally, one of the pain points I have as someone who's now doing this work from home thing, and I also juggle a lot of work in different open source projects, especially in infrastructure, is I'm working with using two or three VPNs simultaneously. Um, many people don't realize this, but like Linux has actually never correctly supported multiple VPNs running in tandem. Um, and the reason for that is that DNS across VPNs, if you're using the just a plain uh, Etsy resolve conf file, will just get clobbered. Like you're just going to, it's going to mess up. It's going to do the wrong thing. Moving to systemd resolve D for the default resolver. So we have a local resolving recursive DNS and then network manager, which is going to connect to resolve D and configure it. Um, basically split horizon DNSs and zones for, for different for different VPNs and direct those those queries to the right places means that you effectively can run two or three DNS connection uh, VPN connections, direct traffic to each VPN correctly, and do DNS resolution on each VPN as you want. So for example, nice. my corporate VPN has a sub, has a set of domains and I configure those so that they all go through that domain for DNS queries and for network traffic. And then the OpenSUSE Heroes VPN, which I use for working in OpenSUSE infrastructure, has a different setup. And I can have both of them running at the same time and everything just works and weird things don't happen. And I don't wind up losing internet access because DNS is broken. <laughs> because DNS being broken is very frustrating. Yeah, that so, sounds awesome. And is like, this is a thing that even Windows doesn't perfectly do right. And I'm very happy to see that we're making strides towards improving this. Yeah. Does this have any uh, effect as to like maybe a, because it, it can do Resolve D has the ability to do these multiple VPNs at the same time. Does that make it where you can transition back and forth that will avoid like traffic leakage and stuff like that? Yep. So awesome. you can it, it, with with Network Manager. So like I don't I can't speak about any other network management tools, but when you're using Network Manager, you can configure each VPN to direct traffic accordingly based on queries or net addresses, subnet masks and whatnot. So that's things you can do. Um, I don't know. I can't speak about other tools, but at least the ones that we've got in Fedora where it's based on network manager and things like that, you can do that now. Uh, Gnome nice. and Gnome's uh, network configuration and Plasma's network configuration applets will both let you set this up. Um, they don't necessarily like, they won't automatically do the thing where they'll say this is going to be exclusive, like per VPN, whatever, it's because most people only do one. But like if you have multiple VPNs, it's a simple checkbox to make it work that way. Nice. What are the next steps, uh, Neil, for Fedora? You know, you've got, you're obviously making progress on the desktop. Is there more success to be had? Are there more desktop users out there? And if so, how do we get them on Fedora? Well, I mean, this, this kind of comes back to like, people who are using it, people who try it and use it should share the love a little. Like, you know, I'm, I'm sure each of you have had that story at some point where someone who was a Linux enthusiast gave you a CD or a DVD or a USB stick and said, hey, give it a shot, try it out. I think you'll like it and, and, and run with it. This is the story how most people, I think in the last five to seven years have actually got into Linux. Very rarely will you have a story like mine where somebody goes into the library and there's just a random like whatever there, but like, because <laughs> yeah, whatever. But like that's 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 one avenue, and and I think that's probably the most important one. But also, we're now getting Fedora preloaded on computers, so that means that there's a whole yeah. set of problems so that awesome. people, whole set of nervousness and anxiety that people don't have to deal with. So like I would say. Go go recommend the you know the Lenovo ThinkPads with Fedora preloaded on them, or check out the Slimbook Essential that has a Fedora variant now. Like there are computers out there with Fedora preloaded, and go check those out and 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 share those with other people and and help people you know ex experience Linux that way because. I think one of the, it doesn't matter how easy we make the installation processes or the setup process or whatever. Like I would argue Anaconda's like got the nicest, simplest experience for somebody who doesn't know what they're doing. 
But it's still a very scary proposition to say, well, you're about to erase everything on your computer. Let's Are you hope sure you want to? Yeah. yeah, let's hope everything works right afterwards. And like, I, nobody should have to feel that kind of anxiety if they don't want to. Uh, well, I don't think anyone wants to feel anxiety, but like <laughs> nobody should nobody should want to have to go through that process or have to go through that process. They should have an equally good option preloaded, and that's that's an avenue that we should start embracing and and giving to other people. I and like and in insofar as Fedora development, like where I'm looking at for the Linux desktop, I think doubling down on 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 making that move to Wayland, starting to improve the gaming experience and stuff like that. I think that's the real next frontier because we've got the developer experience um, in, okay, it's not great uh, in some, in every respect. Like I still kind of wish we had a visual studio quality IDE where you had documentation and examples and like people could get started right away with making good applications and stuff. But we're better off than, than a lot of other um, alternatives when it comes to like making applications now. But what I would like to what I would like to see is like we should we should focus on improving the gaming experience. We should start trying to make enthusiasts who tend to tweak and eke out all the performance in their computers to start being start thinking. Well, instead of Windows, let's put Linux on this machine and really scream. Like, I would love it one day if an esports team could actually win with using Fedora on their computer rather than I like Windows. that idea. That's fire <laughs> that, right that's there. Awesome. Yeah. And, and Neil, you're just touching on this question I had for you right now. Sure. Um, uh, what work are you seeing within Fedora as a contributor contributor that has you so excited for the future after the 33 release? And, you know, you were just talking about that a bit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, so the 33 release included the DXVK switch for Wine. So, like, mm. now you're going to see uh, if, if your hardware supports Vulkan and does it well. Um, it'll auto switch to that on inst uh, when you try to run a Windows game through Wine on it, and so you'll get better performance and stuff like that. What I would, what I'm hoping for, what I'm excited for, is the continual effort to, you know, streamline the graphics pipeline to improve the performance there, to broaden the hardware support. Getting that to be top tier uh, is mm -hmm. is what I'm looking towards, and I and I see it every incrementally every step of the way it's happening in Fedora first with a lot of, with, you know, with the wonderful folks in the Red Hat desktop graphics team, they're doing a fantastic job, like bringing forward graphics performance. Like we even have the AMD Rad V driver from Mesa that was actually written, I think mm -hmm. by David Arley at Red Hat. And that outperforms in most cases, AMD's own Vulkan driver, AMD VLK, it sometimes is most of the time slightly or very worse uh, than, or much worse, that's a better phrase, than, uh, than the RADV driver. And that's mm. great because it shows that people who are working together as a community who are really focused on improving the situation are able to be successful and deliver great results. Like the, the thing I kind of am hoping for now um, is we gotta get an we've got to get something to replace CUDA. Like CUDA is is the chokehold right now in the graphics stack because lots of applications, Windows, Linux, whatever, they tend to use CUDA for compute stuff, including encoding and decoding. And that isn't going to fly because it's a proprietary standard that NVIDIA drives that only works on NVIDIA cards. Yeah. We need we a more, we need an open standard in that everyone can adopt and use. Uh, we don't have an equivalent right now, as far as I'm aware, to Windows's direct storage API. That's even being like even game consoles have some variant. Boy, of that. they are really firing that off right now. Yeah, in the yeah, gaming world. Yeah, they're really <clears throat> pushing it. And I and these are the things that I'm concerned about. I don't necessarily have any power to make any of those things because I don't know how that stuff works. I'm not that good at that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Like I, I like hardware, but hardware programming is not my fort. But these are the things where I, I'm looking towards the future and I'm thinking these are the things as a community and as a platform that we need to start moving towards because if we don't, I don't know how we're going to break past that, that, that ceiling that we have right now. But we are inching towards that ceiling and I'm very happy with the progress that we're making. Love yeah, it. I want to see a lot more work on OpenCL. I mean, it mm -hmm. uh, CUDA, you know, always renders quicker and it, and it has you know, for a while. And uh, OpenCL, though, was kind of king back in the day when mm -hmm. I would uh, set up my render farms for my animation um, business. 
Um, it was all OpenCL back in those days. It all started out as OpenCL, and then it switched yeah. to CUDA later and on. And they because... switched to CUDA, yeah. And it was OpenGL before that. Yeah. <laughs> we well, were... Yeah. Well, OpenGL for for encoding and, and rendering is not fun. That, yes, no, I've been there. <laughs> it, it's like one of the worst APIs for that kind of stuff. But yeah, yeah like this is with Vulkan, with SpearV and all these, you know, all these things that are going on in the Kronos group. Those are the things I'm concerned about because I, we don't, I don't know who I need to be saying to the, to the, in, into the void. I don't know who which part of the void I need to be shouting into, but I'm shouting to the void and I'm like, we need these things because I don't know how we're going to compete, you know, mid to long term without the without equivalence to those that either match or surpass. Mm-hmm. And maybe somebody needs to re-implement CUDA as a free as a, a free implementation that operates yes. on top of OpenCL first. That might actually be a thing that we need. Uh, I don't know, uh, but we need to do something because that's the part where I, I'm looking forward. You know, past thirty four, thirty five, whatever. This is the nebulous future type mm-hmm. where it's like this is what we need to 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 start breaking past those last barriers to make Linux a successful platform on the desktop. Yeah, I think there's a lot, lot of great points. And I, I think that there's a lot of stuff that has been happening in terms of like improvements for the future of the desktop for a, for many years. And one of those things is the universal formats, in my opinion. So we have the snaps and flat packs and app images and that sort of stuff. And there's still some controversy about what the relevance for these formats are and that sort of stuff. And as a package manager, what is your take on the effectiveness of these types of formats? And do you have a preference of any of the formats uh, in, you know, in general, these three, that kind of thing? Okay, so this is this is a. Uh, it's my, a loaded question. You're it's welcome. a loaded question. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to give you a somewhat nuanced answer because uh, it's a little hard to to tear apart like what exactly I'm, I I want to say for this. But I think the universal package formats aren't helping. They they don't help the real problem we have with Linux right now. Distribution is something ironically that I think we've got so well done in spades. We don't need more of them. I, I don't, I, this is a somewhat unpopular opinion, but that being said, the systems that we have now, you know, even RPM being used as a universal format, which is possible. I, I actually used to do it professionally before. Um, using RPM as a universal format is possible. Flatpak as a universal format is fine. Snap as a universal format is fine as well. Of the three of the three types, I think RPM and, um, and Snapcraft are are the best developer experiences in terms of package formats. And having done this with RPM, Deb, Flatpak, Snap, AppImage, everything. Like I've done a lot of them. RPM and Snap are the nicest developer experiences um, for packaging software. The Flatpak developer experience just, it's getting better, but it really needs work. Um, the user experience for Flatpak is actually better right now. Um, I think this will change in the near term. I think I've seen some improvements from the Snap team recently that I think will help. I'm just playing wait and see there. But I think that the real the real issue we have is that people don't know how to make apps. Like there are no examples, there's no guidelines or interface guidelines and things like that. You look at elementary OS, like they've created fantastic documentation and guidelines, HIG, a human interface guideline for what you know for people who don't know a human interface guideline that describes the user experience paradigm that elementary os is trying to achieve gives you examples gives you patterns gives you you know code that you can look at and people build applications on them and ship them on the elementary app center and this is what tells me the package format matters so little it is really the developer the part about making applications is what sucks to be clear both the GNOME and KDE projects have recognized that this is a thing. And if you go look at uh, gtk.org right now or develop.kde.org, they are clearly working on it. It is just happening too slow. I think KDE will eventually get there first because they have this whole comprehensive framework thing. They've got the Kirigami patterns and stuff. And they're starting to come up with this whole design pattern for how applications should work. So there's there's something happening on that front. On the GNOME side, they've actually had an HIG for like going on 10 years. They don't necessarily follow it that well with their own applications, but they've got one. And it, and, and it mostly is fine. They don't, they lack in code examples. They lack in documentation in terms of patterns and tutorials and stuff. And this is the next step, I think, for making 
desktop Linux more successful is that you've got to help people be successful in making their, being creative, making applications. Because clearly it shows that the, the universal package formats, while they probably help a little bit, like even in my own experience as a corporate you know, third-party packager for my day job, I don't care about the universal formats. I've actually been very successful using, you know, RPMs and DEBs and whatever, like using RPM spec files to build for all the different targets. You know, I've given talks about it and stuff, but like that doesn't matter so much. What matters is that people need to figure out how to make applications because it doesn't matter how you distribute it if you can't even figure out how to make an app to distribute. So that's my real problem. Like that's why I, I, I want to see more work in developer.fedoraproject.org. I want to see more work on gtk.org. I want to see more work on develop.kde.org. I want to see more focus on improving the quality of life for people making any kind of Linux application, desktop Linux, command line tools, services, web apps, whatever, but especially for desktop Linux applications because this is why we suffer. It's because we're missing that piece. Very interesting view. Thank you, Neil. Always being a resource to so many of us within Linux and all of the work that you do for maintaining these critical packages and your insight into these things. We, we, I just thank you for coming on the program, being willing to share all this with us. Yeah. It's my pleasure. Yeah, I love, love you, hanging Neil. out with you guys. <laughs> well, we love you being here. And obviously one of our patrons said, you need to stop being so shy, Neil, and speak up in the future <laughs> because you're a wealth of knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do a great job. And thank you for fact checking us for all these episodes. Yes. You help keep us on track and we really do appreciate it. Well, Thanks. It's my now. pleasure. Our security advisory this week is brought to you by Bitwarden. And this security advisory is to be cautious about what apps you're installing on your phone. Many social media apps and just any many websites in general are constantly hounding you about installing their spe specific particular app for more optimal experience. And the reason they really want you to do this is that apps so they can collect more information about you, like your location, your microphone access, text, uh, camera access, or contacts, and so much more. Especially the most annoying thing about like, would you like to connect or sync your contacts and stuff so we can have all the people in your, right. your contacts address book and stuff? Anyway, if you can view it through your browser or simply not use it at all, you'll have more control in keeping that data private. So keep that in mind. And if you want a, another way to stay secure, you can get a password manager. A, and a great password manager that we use and trust is Bitwarden. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager, as well as additional authentication, such as master passwords and adding phrase, uh, passphrases into fingerprint security and all this, so much more to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync sensitive data. You can go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. Bitwarden is a great password manager and I use and trust it. I've been using it for many years. And one of the reasons I switched to it was because I found out that it was 100% open source software. And it also lets you to do uh, self-hosting if you'd like to do that. Uh, but the, one of the things that I loved about it when I first found it is in addition to the open source aspects, they also do security audits. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account. But if you're like me, you want to you make the smart move and get the premium account because that premium account gives you a lot of extra cool features and get one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login, uh, login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, and so much more, including Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage and Generation, and so much more. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started with your free account and make the smart move like many from the community have and get your free account or get that $10 per year premium edition because it's definitely worth it. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. Space. A Linux frontier. Linux isn't just useful here on Earth, it's good for the entire galaxy. And as proof, SpaceX launched not one, but two separate Falcon 9 rockets loaded with Starlink satellites for its broadband internet service just last week, which brings the total to just around a thousand of these low orbiting satellites. This will be, you know, so wonderful. Um, for internet access for those people who are still on dial-up and old DSL. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. this is really going to, this is going to open the world up to people on the internet who do not have access. And the space station, that amazing modular space station floating around on our planet also runs Linux. They, in fact, switched from Windows to Linux on the desktop in 2013. And 
If that's not exciting enough, how about Microsoft partnering with SpaceX, leveraging Azure Space to handle all space-related businesses attached to its cloud data efforts? What this is boiled down to, Linux is everywhere, and its application capabilities are endless. It's exciting to see Linux leveraged, le leveraged in the future of space exploration and discovery. And it also means experience in Linux is going to continue to be a hot commodity for jobs in these fields, and especially to Starlink, where this will provide millions of people access to higher broadband internet to locations where access has been unreliable, expensive, or completely un unavailable. Yeah, this is massive it's for massive. when we talk about <laughs> when you're trying to convince somebody to get into Linux. I hear a lot of people will, will say, hey, you use it every day if you have an Android device. I think Android is probably the worst representation of Linux out there, so I tend to avoid that one. But this is something I would use to convince somebody um, about Linux and the power of it. Yeah, It's also what I would use to convince somebody to think about the future. If you are interested in telecommunications, if you are interested and getting into data analysis, into cloud data storage. Linux here is powering all of these future technologies. The, the introduction about the moon water joke at the beginning of the show, <laughs> the reality <laughs> is this week they found water. Yep. that They always yes, suspected it Mars. was there, but they found <laughs> that on the moon, right? That it was frozen on the moon. And so where they suspected it would be, they were able to prove that it was actually there. And all of this technology, all of these things floating around in outer space are being powered by this operating system we talk about every single week, this kernel. Uh, and they are leveraging it in so many different ways, including how Microsoft is leveraging it with its Azure platform to start creating partnerships with these companies. Mm -hmm. And that just shows you the power and flexibility of this. Imagine trying to send a rocket into space with Windows 10 on it, and it needs to do an update. Just yeah. imagine. Right. <laughs> it, needs, it needs to do a blue screen. A train wreck <laughs> yeah. in the middle of, you're about to exit the orbit, and an update is available, and you can't tell the update to go away. And the yeah. rocket comes Would you like to postpone your Earth. landing for four hours? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Clippy coming up on the screen in the middle of needing to eject your rockets. I mean, these are I the can problems. help you with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So right. this is why I, I just, I, when I was reading about this and learning more and more about it, number one, these articles that I covered here, these were not yes. just Linux articles. These were in mainstream news talking about Microsoft's partnership using Azure and Linux. It was in mainstream news about the International Space Station switching to Linux, mainstream news about SpaceX Falcon 9 rockets, which Everybody wants to watch those things take off and land, all mm -hmm. utilizing Linux. Yeah. <laughs> this to me is insanely exciting for Linux. Yeah. And for again, for that mission critical, you do not want the blue screen of death when you're in space <laughs> if you're having to rely on an operating system. And that's just so true. And for me, this is a topic that is so near and dear to me. Okay. So not only do I live in the community called the South Bay of Los Angeles. It's one of the largest aerospace communities and think tanks in the world. But I live by SpaceX and JPL and all the companies so that exciting. NASA work at and contract with. And both my grandparents were rocket scientists for NASA before and during the Apollo years. Nice. Unbelievable. And that is amazing. Oh my gosh. And when you find out what they did, I don't, you know, I, I look at my life and I'm like, I haven't accomplished anything. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's not here about my grandparents. Okay, so. So when your parents would tell you in a math problem or something, it's not rocket science, Jill. They literally knew yeah. that it wasn't rocket science. It's yeah. Rocket. My dad joked, Michael. Am I going to get I, I applaud. Yeah, I applaud. There okay, there you go. Thank Very you. good. <laughs> yeah. So my grandfather was head of the surveyor mission to the moon and was one of the, the chief engineers of the Apollo missions. He was the chief engineer that said, let's launch Apollo uh, missions into space. Oh, my gosh. And my grandmother and her team built the engine on the lunar exploration module, the one that brought our astronauts home on Apollo 13. And they, they bo both had gotten uh, presidential you know, awards, uh, you know, from the president accommodations 
for the work they did on the missions. So I've lived it. I don't know know how to physically express mind blowing, but you know, you know, there's that's happened right now. (laughs) (laughs) And it just, it just excites me so much. And, uh, you know, including many of my animation students at the local community college that I teach at work at SpaceX and NASA. And because I'm just right down the street from them. (laughs) So I, you know, I help them, you know, build some of their animations and their walkthroughs with different scenarios. So that's been kind of cool and and learning how to, how to do that. And I really get excited when my aerospace students talk about Linux and mention that they use Debian and CentOS and scientific Linux. And this is many years ago, you know, and, and in fact, because Linux has been used on the back end at NASA for many years. And before that, they were using Unix and BSD. And the International Space Station, ISS, for instance, runs on 1988 vintage 20 megahertz Intel i386 CPUs. They, they wow. need that older hardware that's hardened for, stay f- for space flight because it's stable. And they essentially are making embedded computers, you know, that will withstand the radiation and all the the serious threats that come from being in space. Right. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. <laughs> and Linux being the Swiss Army knife of all the OSs with its, you know, being so memory efficient, uh, so fast, and the flexibility of size and stability is the obvious choice for the old hardware up in the space station. So, you know, and I've, I've actually been to many JPL talks about how they used Linux on the Spirit and Opportunity rovers. And that was just so fascinating, the flexibility and the ability to, you know, upgrade the software, you know, instant, not instantly, it would take a while to get there, but they could update the Linux software, thus updating the hardware capabilities of the rovers. It was, it's really amazing. And I, I just, way back when I'd even installed uh, the Amigo software that JPL uses to control the Mars rovers when they were launched for Debian, because uh, oh. that's what they were using at that time. And I had a lot of fun uh, playing around with that in the beta. And so at Linux is just, it's all over space. And even the European Space Agency migrated over to SUSE Linux back in 2012. So, you know, everyone is using it in space. They need that stability. And for mission critical, when your life depends on it and your mission depends on it, you need right. something stable and secure. Well, I was so excited <laughs> to see this article and kind of build this story out, knowing you were going to be joining Destination Linux because your experience here, I knew a little bit about it, but not that much. Now, I don't want to brag. My grandfather was able to open a particularly stubborn pickle jar once. Um, <laughs> but your stories there with the rocket science is just it's just amazing. So thank you for sharing that with us. Aww. Yeah, that's that's amazing. And there's so like I knew a little bit about the space stuff, but all that other stuff was just it's fantastic. And, you know, we definitely appreciate you sharing all that. And this is kind of a funny thing about like the fact that you're wearing the Linux is Everywhere T-shirt that's available in the DLNstore.com, by the way, Uh, that is uh, it's it's really cool because it's when I made that shirt, I knew that it was in in, like in space, but I didn't know it was in that that degree in space. Like Mm -hmm. it's not only is it everywhere, it's even off planet. And, you know, it's it's intergalactic. It's it's, yes. it's pretty much everywhere <laughs> at this point. Yeah. So yeah, it's it's amazing. So in our gaming this week, something not quite as exciting as space, at least for me, is <laughs> Facebook is entering the cloud gaming arena. Because why not? It seems to be the thing everyone does now. Um, so if 2020 was looking down for you, here's your exciting news to bring your spirits back up. You can play video games uh, from Facebook. They're joining the ranks of NVIDIA, GeForce Now, Google Stadia, Amazon Luna, Microsoft Xbox Game Pass to compete with all of these services. However, I will say this. They did come out very specifically and say, look, we're not looking to replace your console. We're not looking to replace your PC. We're not creating a service like that. What we're going to do is we're going to offer you a streaming service with games that has no monthly fee and no cost out of the kindness of their heart. They want nothing back from you except all your data <laughs> and to run some ads. So you're going to have this. Do you guys remember, was it Net Zero 
back yeah, was, when we were dial up yeah, and you would, you would run mm-hmm. ads. It was free. You could do dial up for free, but yep. it would run these ads in the corner. Uh, so uh, yes. I don't know. I, I <laughs> guess that's what it kind of reminds me of is now if you've ever played some of these mobile games, especially in the Android Google Play Store and you just download a random game and you make a few moves in the game and all of a sudden an ad pops up that you have to watch until that ad's over and then you can continue playing your now video you can game. play those anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Now, <laughs> now you can play those exciting, annoying games everywhere is kind of my personal take on how I feel like this service is going to run. But the good news is that if you are a Facebook fan and somehow listening to this podcast and somehow utilizing Linux for privacy and security, if you've somehow passed all of those, you can run this in Linux. Yay. And it includes games like Alpha 9, <laughs> uh, Mobile Legends Adventure by Moonton, PGA Tour Golf, Solitaire. Solitaire. Which, why not? You know? Sure. I mean, Yay. to me, I'm, I'm already signing up as soon as we get off the show today. WWE <laughs> Supercard by 2K and coming soon, Dirt Bike Unchained by, by Red Bull. So it's actually now it's like by the sponsors, right? That, that are coming in. So that's an advertisement for the game. They actually you put in advertising <laughs> in just telling you the game was yeah. around. So brought to you by Red Bull. <laughs> so if that doesn't have you excited for 2020, I don't know what will. But there you go. Facebook entering into the game streaming market. But you know what's more exciting is Game Fest November 15th, where you won't have to listen to a bunch of ads to play the games because we are going to be playing Zenotic on our own Destination Linux server hosted by DigitalOcean. We're going to be playing Yay. Super Tux Cart on our own Destination Yay. Linux server hosted mm-hmm. by DigitalOcean out there. And we're also going to be playing Among Us, which is really popular right now. And Noah, this is you're going to like this game. You don't shoot people, but you do murder people secretly. <laughs> and then people try to find out if you're the secret agent that's that doing all the killing. Really it's much fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have you in Zenotic anyways. That's yeah, just, there, you go. yeah. there you go. <laughs> We're continuing our exploration of the Linux file system in our tips and tricks section this week. Uh, so far, we've covered everything from temp to serve. This week, we're going to be covering slash sys. Slash sys is another virtual directory like proc and slash dev that contain information about devices connected to your system. Now, modern Linux distributions include a slash sys directory as a virtual file system, which not only stores, but allows modifications of devices connected to the system. Slash sys can be dangerous if you break your system messing around in here. If you don't know what you're doing, could be dangerous. So if you want to play with it, play with it in a VM before you make any changes. Of course, we invite you to go back and listen to previous episodes that cover previous parts of the Linux file system and continue to stay tuned as we continue to explore Linux file system on our tips uh, of the week software pick section. So up next in the spotlight section, we're going to talk about the PhD2 guiding software. So what does that mean? So we're going to, since we talked about space exploration and that kind of thing, you can do some space exploration at home with a telescope while leveraging the power of Linux using PhD2 software. So PhD2 is a telescope guiding software that simplifies the process of tracking a guide star, letting you concentrate on other aspects of deep sky imaging instead. And there's also things for experienced users and beginner users. So just a quick note, if you're a beginner to this, uh, like I definitely would be, there's a setup wizard to be guiding, getting started with just a few mouse clicks, extensive support for commonly used equipment, smart calibration for automatically adjusting for side of peer and uh, pointing location and that sort of stuff, intelligent default settings for out-of-the-box results, tools for drift alignment and comment tracking, uh, proactive suggestions and advisory messages to improve your guiding, and all sorts of stuff. It even has experienced improvement for the people who are experienced with doing it, like multiple algorithm choices for each telegroup access, uh, guiding assistance for measuring mount performance, and so much more, including quick and easy switching between multi or multiple imaging configurations and a ton of more stuff. If you're interested in this, like you want to do some space exploration on your own at, at home, then you there's a great time to do it. Check out the PhD2 guiding software, and we'll have links in the show notes below. That's it. A wrap on Destination Linux, episode 198, now with Jill. A big thank you to each and every one of you by supporting us, watching us, listening to Destination Linux. However you do it, we appreciate you so much. And if you want more DL, become a patron 
like all of these beautiful faces here with us right now and get a bunch of perks like unedited versions of the show, VIP access to events and live recordings of Destination Linux every Sunday, and come hang out and talk with the crew. In fact, with Game Fest coming up, because we can't have everybody, a lot of games have limits of four to eight people, obviously patrons, you're going to be able to jump in there and play with us first. And then other games where it's more open, everyone can join in. There's a lot of perks from coming to patrons, so consider joining. So it's time for you to join the DLN community. Yes, you, right there, watching the show, join the DLN community. We also have our, our Matrix and Telegram and Discord, and they're all bridged together now, so you can join the over 1,000-plus community members discussing open-source Linux and everything else on the platform of your choice. So if whether you like Matrix or Telegram or Discord, you can use all of them and have the same conversation with everybody. That's the wonders of bridging the, the social media and stuff like that. So check it out. We'll have links in the show notes for how you can join the DLN community. Do you realize how many amazing shows are now part of the Destination Linux network? If you didn't, then let me just name a few. We have the new Pseudo Show. We have the Ask Noah Show. This Week in Linux. DOS Geek. DLN Extend. The wonderful Hardware Addicts. And we even have a new show coming from a name you know well and are going to love. So go to Destination linux.network and subscribe to all these shows to get the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. <laughs> Everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as, as the, the destination. destination. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See you next week. Good job.